0: Kaplan, a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And I'm Taylor Carmen, a professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I lecture and write books about things like existentialism and phenomenology and the meaning of life. And you are a person listening to a podcast
1: called Terrifying Questions (laughs) and How Not to be Terrified by Them. And that's a philosophy podcast where Taylor and I look at terrifying questions and we think about them and we try to find our way to a place where we and you can feel courageous. And what is our terrifying question this week, Eric? The terrifying question is is free will an illusion? Aha. Are we just puppets? Are we puppets? Are we or robots? Yeah, robots. Are we a billiard ball that thinks he would love to go into the <laughs> side pocket, but actually he's impelled by the laws of
0: physics to do that? Um Spinoza says something like that. You throw a rock through the air and the rock thinks it's flying with its free will. Right, and does Spinoza yeah. think the rock is wrong? I think Spinoza doesn't believe in free will. But I do remember Schopenhauer quoting this line of Spinoza's, and Schopenhauer says, Spinoza says, uh, the rock that you throw through the air thinks it's flying freely, and it's right. <laughs> Interesting.
1: Yep. I remember reading that essay by Schopenhauer, Yeah, and feeling like an idiot because I believe in free will yeah. but he kind of made me feel foolish to believe in it oh but he does believe in it because he does he then yeah. I just didn't even understand it so maybe He's, I felt like an idiot and I was one for a different reason
0: he, That's good to he thinks Kant got it exactly right which is to say we have to see ourselves as free and we can only see nature as deterministic, and so we have to see ourselves sort of from both points of view. Nah. But we can't really reconcile them. And okay. I like that view a lot. Yeah. I like the view a lot too. But let's set up the question
1: first before yeah. we start, because yeah. I feel like we jumped from we from Kant to Spinoza to, to <laughs> Schopenhauer. Let's let's just yeah. let's start um, by saying, so here's here's what I think yeah. is I sort of think. I could pick up my hand and move it to the right. Yeah. Or I could pick it up and move it to the left. Right. And it's up to me. But it worries me. The following argument worries me, Taylor. Yeah. Which is I'm made out of atoms. Yeah. And if you understood enough about the laws that govern atoms, mm. you would know what's gonna happen to the atoms in my brain, yep. and thus the atoms in my hand. Yep. So I'm wrong to think it's
0: up to me. It's actually up to the laws governing atoms. This is such a deep and difficult problem. But that's, in a nutshell, what people have worried about, at least for the last few hundred years. uh, The version of this problem has been in terms of determinism. The deterministic laws of nature make nature look like a machine where if you could know the beginning state and all the laws, you would know exactly what was going to happen, down to the minutest detail, which is going to include everything you or I ever do, which means it's all geared in from the beginning and we don't have any real control like we think we do. And some people think the uh, quantum indeterminacy
1: is somehow a good thing but i think that's wrong yeah. because i think what quantum indeterminacy tells us is that some of those electrons yeah. flip a coin yeah exactly but, but i don't want to know that the <laughs> electrons flip a coin because that just means the electrons are going to flip a coin and that will decide whether my hand goes to the right or to the left but i want it to be up to me yeah exactly whether my hand goes to the right or to the
0: left i think it was Moritz schlick who said you know if determinism makes nature and us look like a clock and clockwork then uh, indeterminism, and maybe quantum indeterminism, makes nature look like a broken clock. And that doesn't, oh, broken glass. that doesn't seem like it gets you any closer to freedom. And they murdered him for that, right? No, they, I'm, that's a joke. They, well, they
1: murdered Marge Slick, but for a different reason. It
0: wasn't they. It was some guy, But and I don't right. think I think it was because he was maybe sleeping with the guy's girlfriend or something like oh, that. Oh, is it true? Well, okay. I should be careful what I say, but I'm not sure I that's guess what right. I'm
1: yeah. I'm playing at being a conspiracy theorist and saying, <laughs> and if you point that out, you, what did they do to you, boys and girls? They murder you, he but was, that's not true. He was on that's the track to the
0: truth. He was getting too close yeah, for comfort. They took him but, out. Yeah, uh, the
1: Illuminati got clipped yeah okay i'm look i'm gonna put my cards on the table which is like i'm scared of both aspects of this because i'm scared of the notion that like my life is not up to me i can't be good at it i can't be bad at it i can't notice that i did something bad and kind of blame myself i don't like that but then i also feel like saying that human behavior has no cause makes it impossible to understand and impossible to do anything about. Uh. And that seems wrong because I just sort of feel like, look, we just know that um, if a child is raised in a family full of backstabbing weirdos they're probably going to grow <laughs> up to be a backstabbing weirdo and that's true so i don't <laughs> want to deny that ah. it could, and it could mean i couldn't we couldn't as a species ever improve yeah uh, if we can't understand the causes of our uh, wickedness and iniquity so i i am ambivalent about this one and, and i i did i uh my wife listened to this and she said you need to stop saying in you know in a podcast that you don't know things <laughs> Um, but but I said no 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 it's it's a it's a I, I'm not saying I personally am an idiot I, I'm saying that actually these questions are challenging and one of the steps towards understanding them is to acknowledge that we don't know that's right that they're
0: they're they're hard that's your Socratic wisdom Eric I, I it's my Socratic I respect wisdom like, it very much yeah. like,
1: it's my Socratic wisdom yeah exactly get off my case but anyway that's 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 more self
0: disclosure than I was planning to do I'm more I'm more likely to be opinionated I'm like uh, Nietzsche has this wonderful passage where he talks about children of priests or pastors like himself just assert their views oh that's interesting because unlike jewish philosophers like spinoza who feel like they have to prove everything which is why spinoza wrote in the geometrical method with axioms Uh and theorems and proofs because they're used to not being believed right the pastor or the priest is used to being believed so he can just sort of say what he wants so i'm a little bit on the other side of that
1: interesting bernard williams Came from a line of uh, ministers. Oh, Interestingly interesting. enough, he yeah. told me that once. He always
0: seemed very self-confident to me.
1: He is, yeah, he's confident. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm I'm not going to put on Kayfabe lack of self-confidence. I'm not saying that it's a it's a <laughs> incapacity. Due to me, <laughs> no, you're right. Misspending my youth that I don't understand the problem of free will, I think it's a hard problem. It has a
0: Socratic edge too, because the the suggestion is, and maybe not wrongly, that people who think they understand this maybe they don't. It's kind of true. that's true. I'm being sarcastic, I and now
1: maybe every time I stop being sarcastic, I'm going to ring this Tibetan bowl. <laughs> And bring us back to clarity.
0: Okay, good. So you're ambivalent about this. Yes. So am I, and it's disquieting, but I think it's neither the case that our freedom and therefore our responsibility is boundless. But neither is it that if you grow up in a family of exes, you're going to be an ex or a criminal or a liar or whatever. I mean, children are very unpredictable and siblings are very different from each other. But hang on. If you grew up,
1: I don't mean to interrupt, if you grew up in a family of cavemen. In the Paleolithic. Yeah, 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 of course. You're probably not going (laughs) to... You're not going to go to medical school. (laughs) Well, you're not going to go to medical school. That's true. So clearly external things are not available to you. That's right. But some internal things aren't available to you either. Some. Like, do we fault a caveman who just grows up in an environment where if anyone takes your thing, if you don't hit him on the head, you'll starve the following week? So to hit anyone... On the head, do we do we yeah.
0: fault him for not having an ethic of forgiveness and mercy? That <laughs> no. seems crazy. Of course right? not. You're right. Yeah, there's real constraints. And you know, if you think of like political affiliation, for the most part, children wind up with something close to their parents' right. political convictions, which I find right. very disquieting. Like, what if I had been born into, I don't know what, a far right-wing evangelical family, which I wasn't? Who knows? I mean, but at the same time, some of those children rebel and switch and, and cross over. And what is over, that moment?
1: Yeah. Like, if we zoom in on that moment— of the person who, like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to take a lurid example, but let's take a lurid example. This actually happened. The guy who grew up, his dad was an American Nazi, and some Jewish kid invited him for Shabbos dinner, and he went. Now, you could almost imagine that that's a crossroads, mm, because mm. once he went, mm. he didn't want to be a jerk at the Shabbos dinner, and he found the people were actually quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah but but if he had been like, F off, Jew, then that would have been a different step. Yeah. And what's going on in his noggin? That's a good question. Is, I, is he suddenly transcending? Is he suddenly like his soul? Maybe. His soul takes off his mask and says, okay,
0: here's what I'm going to do. I choose to be good. Well, And why would the soul choose to be bad? <laughs> maybe he always had that in him. I saw a recent show, for a similar kind of case, where a guy who was a, a veteran, I think from Iraq or Afghanistan war, came back and he had a lot of real um, anger and Islamophobia and he was very angered that his daughter was sitting at lunch with an Arab or a Muslim or something like that. And he was actually Mm -hmm. planning to set a bomb at a local mosque, uh, very close to this, and then wound up meeting the people at the mosque and sitting down to have a conversation with them and then really got to know the community and now is very close with them and volunteers to do work there at the mosque and had like what he describes as a kind of conversion experience where he let go of all that hatred. And so now here's the problem. Any story we tell like that, you could say, yeah, if you had known enough about the world from the beginning you would have seen this coming because it's perfectly predictable given people's innate capacities or dispositions or whatever. And this looks unpredictable, but it's just because we don't know enough and maybe they really are on rails after all. Uh But what we want is not unbounded, limitless freedom. Right. Um, What we want is kind of elbow room or space in which to make choices and not feel like we're completely on rails. So it seems like there's got to be a happy medium. Usually, of course, the way people think about free will is often all or nothing. You've either got free will or you don't. And in one sense of that concept, you must either have it or you don't. Okay, great. But... In some other level of description, there's got to be some kind of combination of, if not strict determinism, something like very strong determining conditions on all of us that we can't escape, and at the same time, something like this space of available room or choice.
1: So let's zoom in on this guy who, hey, Nazi, we're having a Jewish party. Yeah. How'd you like to come? <laughs> and then we freeze frame. Yeah. And... and <laughs> And a devil appears on his shoulder in in in, you know, (laughs) swastika gear and says, Tell the Jew to go to heck. And then the angel appears and says, Ah, isn't dad kind of a creep? Isn't he just (laughs) functioning from his own psychopathology? Aren't you more than your why don't you just go? They seem nice. And then in the middle there's that
0: guy. What's going on? We don't know. And it's interesting. And even he doesn't know, maybe. He doesn't know. Yeah. People are sometimes ridiculed for saying that, oh, well, free will is a mystery. But it is. Uh Uh-huh. And that shouldn't be taken to be some kind of superstitious kind of claim just because it's not surprising that so many things are mysterious to us because our knowledge is finite. Yeah. And maybe, you know, this isn't even a superstitious hypothesis, which is maybe there just is no explanation to be had for some things that happen. I think this is bound to remain. I mean, I don't have a knockdown argument for this, but my strong feeling, well, let's just say it's very plausible, very likely that we will never understand this either just because of the sheer complexity of what goes on in the brain or for some other reason that we're never going to reconcile these two ways of seeing the world. This is why I like the Kant-Schopenhauer sort of picture. There's something right right about it, I think.
1: And I want to tell the people at home that it's not a sign of intellectual weakness or cowardice eh. on the part of me and Taylor, that we're <laughs> ex- accepting that there are some things we don't understand. And in fact, if I can be aggressive here... It's a sign of intellectual weakness and cowardice on the part of people who claim that they understand something that they don't. So yeah, aggro. We're in an aggro mood this morning.
0: And that includes, by the way, I think the cowardice and weakness includes people who very confidently say things that I think are kind of nonsense, like, we don't have any free will at all of any kind. And every time you think you're making a choice, like moving your hand to the left or the right, the idea that it's up to you to do that is just an illusion. So you can solve this problem just by being a kind of happy determinist and just give up this illusion of free will because that's naive. I mean, to claim to know anything like that, I think, is so preposterous. It's just you can't take it seriously. I would
1: also like to, I would like to make fun of them a little bit and just say, it strikes me that I always must say, I don't accept your argument. And therefore, I'm determined de, by deterministic laws. I don't think you're right, and by deterministic laws, you think you are. And we can't actually have a discussion. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, I'm just, yeah. By deterministic laws, most people think you're wrong. And what else do you want to say? <laughs> okay. So what we do want to say is um, we're going to take a little break, and then we'll come back, and and we'll we'll be confident in our lack of confidence. Exactly. That's called a doctor <laughs> ignorantia, learned ignorance. Okay. <laughs> Okay, we're back with some Doctor Ignorantia.
0: Dare not to know.
1: Yeah, and I feel that in this one, well, I guess we're both doctors, but but Taylor is employed as a doctor. So mm-hmm. so he'll hand he'll be the doctor <laughs> and I'll be the ignorant. I'm a practicing doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a practicing igno- Non, how ignoramus. would you say <laughs> the
0: opposite of Kant's slogan, non sapere so audi.
1: Oh, oh, team a sapere, <laughs> fear, fear to be wise. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And and dare to be a fool. Yeah. Now yeah. I don't want to I don't want to go into persiflage cuz we were talking something uh, interesting uh, a moment ago. And that was you think there's just an ineluctable mystery to the fact that we both want to understand humans and we can understand humans and thems are the bricks.
0: And both of those things are really essential, that we're committed to both of them. So we can't solve this problem just by chopping the baby in half. And what are the two perspectives? Let's say them as clearly as we can. So here's what I think. I think the one perspective we were talking about before with determinism, since indeterminism doesn't seem to help, it doesn't seem to get us any closer to free will, it just looks like nature is much more random than we might have thought. Uh, And that might be actually true. That that perspective is not so much determinism as it is impersonal, object purely physicalistic description of reality that everything is just particles waves whatever deterministic or not it doesn't involve anything like agency or subjectivity or actions it just describes events happening and everything that happens happens and there are laws of nature which describe the not only the regularities but maybe even as people say counterfactuals like if you do this that'll happen and so on and that's a picture of the world that's gotten very powerful It's a very compelling picture of nature. We can understand nature that way, or a lot of it. There's a lot of it we don't understand, though, so it leaves plenty of room for other stuff. We have no idea how things work or what they're like. But the other side of it is this more intuitive, common sense, ordinary position we all start out from long before we ever know anything about science or a scientific picture of the world, which is that we do things, we want things, we respond to actions of other people by engaging with them. I mean, there's no way to do without that point of view of agency, as they say. So life would just stop if we couldn't view the world with those kind of naive lenses. So here,
1: is this the picture then? There are people, and they've got two pairs of glasses. Yeah. And... Sometimes they put on one pair of glasses, and sometimes they put on another pair of glasses. And neither pair of
0: glasses actually tells you what's there, but they're both kind of just useful tools? Maybe. Uh, maybe it's one pair of glasses with two lenses. That's how actually um, I see. Wilfred Sellers sometimes describes this, like binocular vision. You see the world in these two different ways.
1: Okay, I've got so many questions. Yeah. Are there third and fourth and fifth ways? Maybe.
0: Or it's just the two. No, well <laughs> yeah, why just two? <laughs> I think there's lots of them. I mean um yeah, potentially maybe indefinitely many, but how many how many like beauty?
1: Yeah. Like is the whole discussion of what's beautiful and what's not. That's just like that's a third thing. It's not about yeah. It's not about whether you were a good person and right. and lived your life well. Yeah. And it's not about whether the puan's and the muans are going to quarkulate. Um. And it's just <laughs> whether things are
0: beautiful. And there's just there's that's at least three. Yeah, that's right. And maybe maybe the beauty and the agency go together as part of a bun- uh-huh. bundle of sort of um, naive, unreflective, unscientific picture of the world. But yeah, so, there's a well, whole bunch keeps- of things. Yeah. Yeah, that's politics. To me- like, let's like, 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 just need to add a few lenses right. here. There's yeah. like. Um, understanding of, like, politics generally conceived, human relationships, strategic nature of human relationships. You know, human beings have that, and they see the world that way. That's actually, can be in conflict with a lot of other aspects of the naive view, like cooperation and love and companionship or trust or whatever. There's a moral point of view. There's a religious point of view. There's all these points of view on things, yeah. So I think it's a multiplicity. There's this new one that has emerged, especially since the scientific revolution, which is this radically say, impersonal, disenchanted, objective picture. I think a lot of people are laboring under the illusion that that's a kind of global total picture of everything. Uh-huh. And in fact, it's one very highly selective sort of slice of reality uh, that there's no reason to expect, I think, that we'll be able to harmonize it with every other way of looking at reality. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. Um, okay. So there are these standard positions in the textbook discussions of free will that you think that determinism and free will are just incompatible, contradictory, and so let's try and sort of figure out either which one of the two we believe in Because you might say, we have free will, therefore determinism has to be false. You might say determinism is true, so give up the idea of free will. There's other people who think they're compatible, like David Hume thought, if you really understand the idea of free will and the idea of determinism, you'll see they're perfectly harmonious. Those are the kind of standard three positions that have been discussed to death, frankly, um, for a long time. And
1: this existentialist view or Kantian view, this is a fourth position.
0: I think it's actually not quite any of those three, yeah. I think it's kind of incompatibilist in the sense that it doesn't pretend to show you how they're compatible. But in another way, sometimes you'll hear people say Kant's a kind of compatibilist because he does think that we're absolutely committed to both views. There's no jettisoning one in favor of the other. And I think that's what Schopenhauer liked.
1: Now, this is an odd thing. I just have so many questions, although I agree with this. Yeah. Like, one is, are we kind of in some weird post Kantian transcendental way? coming back to souls and bodies, because the bodies are what shows up when you put on the lens of physicalism, Uh and the souls are what show up when you put on the lens of morality. Yeah. And it seems like maybe the people... Twenty five hundred years ago, who were like I don't know? There's a body and a soul, and God knows how they got put together. Maybe they were saying the same thing in a
0: different yep. mythological register. This is interesting. You know, I've I've been thinking about this recently. That ah, uh, we're so trained, at least some of us, from early on in our philosophical education to be anti Cartesian, anti dualist, because doesn't that look silly and again superstitious? There's a philosopher who refers to any reference to the soul or you know, uh, even consciousness, she says, as just, quote-unquote, spooky stuff. Spooky, As if you're, you, you know, you're just, it's like believing in witches. Right. That we want to be as naturalistic as possible and think what we are are bodies, brains, and it's up to the sciences and philosophy to figure out how all this can be just true of physical systems like we are. But it does seem like you lose a lot of what you want to say and what could easily be said by referring to souls, when you take that route, it's a much harder road to travel than it might look at first. So I think traditional talk about souls in contrast to bodies comes from a very deep and maybe instinctive way Of carving up the world that we'll never get completely away from even though once it turned into an explicit philosophical theory it's kind of impossible to believe it because it makes no sense to draw this very very sharp distinction between the soul and the body like Descartes did there's just too many theoretical problems with that to really believe it and yet there's another way in which to talk about persons and beauty and trust and freedom you just cannot do that in a physicalistic language and so it just may be that the idea of the soul is a kind of expression of something we're committed to right and have to be even if once we frame it in the form of a philosophical theory we can't really defend the theory i've right. come to a view of something more like that yeah.
1: is there any way to say something like um like can process or time get us out of this fix mm. can we say something like um we're physical systems that are aspiring to have souls uh, so we have one foot yeah sort of in the future of being sold beings who are free and one foot sort of in the past where we're what is what is um Blanche dubois says we're down with the beasts uh, yeah um, yeah <laughs> and, we're, and we're, we're kind of on the the transition from beast to angel um yeah Like, does time help us get out of this notion that it's just like, it's just a paradoxical Situation. What are you going to
0: say? I think the reason it doesn't is because there's two ways to understand time. And one is all that stuff you just said from kind of the inside or the first person perspective seems to be right. We're leaning into a future, projecting into a future. We experience ourselves as conflicted between being beasts and being angels. All that seems like a good description of the drama of human reality. But step over into the scientific image of the world and time and process are perfectly naturalized physical sort of dimension of the effect of causal laws on physical events unfolding in time and you've got time but you've got a different kind of time which is right, sequential right. Get, linear here, okay yeah, so yeah. here's
1: what i'm trying to say yeah. is don't step over into that view yeah. if you do i don't want to say you're a sinner but like <laughs> i kind of want to say you're a sinner like like honestly i sort of think it's a um a little bit of a psychopathology ah. i don't want to say which one because i'm not qualified to ah. offer diagnoses but but I, I think the desire to look at the world as if nothing matters is a problem huh. <laughs> that makes sense from a first personal point of view.
0: Oh, I think I have a very different perspective on that. What okay. I think is that it's actually, let's see, how do I want to put it? I don't make any judgment about it at all. In fact, I think it's a fascinating fact that we're able to do that. We're actually able to see the world in this radically disenchanted, objective, impersonal way. It's a little frightening, but I think what we've managed to accomplish by doing that is to see how a lot of the world actually really works and to uncover its structure. Okay, but there are some people who are at the best annoying (laughs) and at the
1: worst Yeah. Doers of great evil <laughs> okay. who look at human life as if it's just a machine that they're a part of and they do that I think out of a fear, a discomfort of dealing with vulnerability and emotions. That may be,
0: but they may be the people who save your life by doing brain surgery or heart surgery on you.
1: Right, but they could also be the people who take your life because they decide uh, it's not worth spending money uh, on a person like you. That's what <laughs> you <know? laughs>
0: that's what Aristotle said about a techne. Every techne that you can use for good, you could use for evil. In other words, the really great architect is the one who will know how to demolish a building.
1: Right, and I'm sure Aristotle got here too, but I, let me just say yeah. while we're on the topic yeah. that the choice to live your life as a technician yeah. is a moral choice, or it's a psychologically weighty choice. Um, yeah, and it it's not cool. <laughs> like, don't do that. I see.
0: You know, um, you might enjoy this book if you don't know it already. When breath turns to air. Oh, it's about a neurosurgeon mm-hmm. who is really ambitious and competitive and extremely accomplished and super successful. And then he wound up with cancer. Oh, bummer. And he died fairly young. But he had this, again, I don't know if conversion experience is too strong a term, but it's almost like that. He starts reading a lot of philosophy. He had been an English major, so he really always wanted to be a writer, too. And he ended up writing this book before he died about his experience. And it's a a really beautiful book about this contrast between this highly technical and life-saving mission of his career— over against this humanized sort of and humanistic philosophical picture of life that he'd been neglecting in pursuing his medical career. So it's a fascinating, poignant... An obviously tragic story yeah but I think there's nothing really wrong with the as it were the austere resolute scientific picture of the world as long as it doesn't bleed over into your treating people as as Kant would say merely means nothing but chunks of matter right 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 so it's frightening but fascinating and kind of sublime I think that we can take up that attitude it's cool that we can take it up yeah I guess I'm
1: I just sort of think various moments in my life when I've taken up that attitude and then in retrospect, I've thought maybe I shouldn't have. Oh, I maybe see. I should have been there. Like I was thinking about, and I'm kind of beating myself up, so I don't know how accurate this is, uh. but like when I was very involved in raising my own family and my job, my career, and my parents were getting older, I'm sort of thinking, maybe I should have spent more time with them. They lived in New York. I lived in LA. Maybe mm. I should have gone back more. Mm. And I think, so let's just postulate that i was wrong <laughs> that yeah. i should have spent more time you know uh-huh. and if that's true i think one of the things that would have kept me from doing that is the objective point of view that i would have been like look mm. you can't be everywhere at once and uh, you know mm. they took care of you but they're done with that and you've got this other responsibility here yeah and in a sense like it, it, the objectivity was a way of sort of shutting my heart off to the pain of the situation.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. interesting. I mean, and it's not likely that the really strictly scientific picture of the world is going to tell you anything about what to do. I mean, it's remarkably silent That's on true. those questions. That's
1: true. So That's true. So the
0: universe couldn't care less. Uh, right. Whether you spend more time with your parents. Yeah.
1: That's true. That's true. So maybe the thing that I have my eye on is not the scientific point of view. But a certain sort of emotional move that people do on themselves Aha. that falsely
0: appeals to the scientific point of view. Right, right. And I think people have been taking up something like that perspective long before there was anything like modern science. So here's an interesting thing to think about. In antiquity, people used to talk about fate, like you've got a fate. Mm-hmm. Now, Oedipus had this fate which looks like it was locked in from the beginning because there was this um, prophecy that he would kill his father and marry his mother, and sure enough, that's what happened. It looks like he's on rails to that no matter what he does. But I seem to recall that Achilles in the Iliad had two fates. Oh, did he? Yeah, and they were he could have um, died in battle and gone down in history like he did and be sung about by poets like Homer, or he could have survived and aged and grown old and unknown and stuff. So it's weird to have two fates and i think that just means two top possible ways your life could end whichever way it ends that will have been your fate and that's the way virgil talks about it the need to your the fate of the characters whenever it's mentioned just happens to be how they die um, so here's a th- oh, the upshot yes. the upshot right so here's a disturbing thought imagine a life with as much contingency and even freedom you know uh, as you could possibly want there is one way it will turn out And that will be sealed once it's done. And looking back on it, it will be one thing that you could look back on. And maybe you can understand it in retrospect. But it might look like it was locked in, as it were, from the beginning in retrospect. But even as we tell the story, it looks like you could have done anything. I mean, after all, Oedipus wasn't a victim of scientific determinism. Right. All along the way, he was doing everything he chose to do. In fact, he was trying to avoid killing his father and marrying his mother. So it turns out no matter what he did, as freely as he did it... The result was kind of guaranteed. So it looks like you could have as much freedom as you could possibly want, and it still would be possible to look at your life, at least in retrospect, as being kind of frozen in amber or petrified in a way that looks like maybe all that was an illusion and from this disenchanted, impersonal point of view, maybe you can gain some equanimity by thinking we're all doomed to that anyway. So, um, yeah, yeah, and that's a kind of disengagement, emotional disengagement that you're talking about, maybe. I
1: guess it's funny. Like, I think sometimes a peaceful acceptance of what you can't control is, is a, a very good
0: thing. Reinhold Niebuhr, right, yeah.
1: Right, and it, it almost seems to me like a mercy because at some point... And I I often think, I just don't want to make this call wrong. But at some point, if the doctors are like, hey, Kaplan, it looks like we've run out of things to do for whatever is killing you.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I I kind of, it's my last day. And I don't want to be like, no, no, no. Get your boss on the phone. There's a better thing. Yeah. There's a better thing. And then I die in mid reaming out a guy on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. On the other hand, so I think it's a sort of a mercy yeah. to be like, okay, doctor, I trust you. Thanks. I'm going to spend this time with my family and I'm not going to be like, you know, raging. But on the other hand, there's probably some people who, um, I, I mean, I not, I know some of them personally, who like could do with a little more raging. Yeah, yeah.
0: They give up too soon. And the sheer availability of medical technology to extend our lives has a very powerful effect on choices people make. Um, How so? The availability of the treatment options multiplying makes it very hard to to resist the temptation to, the, to do the next thing that's going to extend your life, no matter what the quality of your life. Right, right. And it's sort of like, if you can think of like a modern hell,
1: it's sort of like, yeah. you're going to be in a bureaucracy, having your body cut with knives, you're going to have that. Taking poison that makes you nauseated, <laughs> you're going to have that. So our least favorite things, like we're sort of electing that that's how we're going to end our lives doing that. Oh, and also spending a
0: lot of money. Yeah, but meanwhile, Who likes that? But meanwhile we have yeah. penicillin and we have nice dentistry and we have right, all no. kinds of stuff that we love. So, No, I'm yeah. in favor, yeah, of, it. Yeah, I'm yeah, in favor yeah. of it. I'm in yeah. favor
1: of it. Yeah. I guess yeah, you just kind of want to you want to know you want to know the correct mix. I mean, maybe that's another one of those double perspectives. Maybe that's an orthogonal set of double perspectives, which yeah. is fighting versus surrendering. Sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um the there's a Philip Roth hmm. novel called Everyman, I think, that's a kind of a meditation on the fact that we spend so much of our lives in hospitals. Interesting, yeah. We're born in hospitals, we go back to the hospital, lots of people die in hospitals, you wind up in a nursing home or a hospital. It's sort of the frame of modern life in sort of this from birth to death sort of, I'm I'm making it sound like a glib sort of thesis. It's a quite beautiful little book. Um yeah, so even if without science, even taking up the ancient tragic view of life yes. that there's a fate awaiting you, yes. and even if that fate isn't like deterministic or even literally fatalistic like Oedipus's fate, but it's just like there will be a way that everything goes and a way it ends, and then stepping back from it, you'll see, well, that's how it was. And there's a way in which maybe it couldn't have been otherwise, and then your first-person perspective from which you feel free was all an illusion. One inference to draw from that may be that that shows you that there isn't any real obvious conflict, because you can have as much freedom as you want, and it will still be possible to view everything from this kind of detached, impersonal, necessitarian sort of perspective. And maybe that means that necessitarian, detached kind of picture, whether it's fate or the scientific image of the world uh, wasn't ever really a threat to your freedom in the first place,
1: right? It, it, so this it, it is, I think, something that um one of these philosophers said, maybe Schopenhauer or Bernard Williams, which is sort of like freedom is like like they put some chains on you, or they threaten to kill you if you leave, or they don't give you any books or 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 any money, <laughs> so you can't do anything. <laughs> Mm. That's those Mm. are things that impinge on freedom. Right. And that's a normal thing to want. And the I mean, I guess, yeah, Bernard Williams was sort of always sort of making this point, but of like, yeah, don't get concerned with wanting this weird philosophical freedom, which might not even make sense. Yeah, because it's distracting you from wanting the actual freedom. And I, I don't know if he said this, but he, I don't think he would disagree. Which is another word for power. <laughs> well, I see. <laughs> you know, uh yeah, positive
0: freedom, right? That and that, that view is like Hume's. When Hume was maybe one of the first compatibilists, he said, "Yeah, there's a uh-huh. difference between coercion and determination." The, the fact that all your actions are caused is fine, because part of that causal chain is you're wanting to do what you do, and so you're free as long as you do what you want to do.
1: Right. But now, are have we lost touch with that earlier cool uh, mysterianism view? That we espoused.
0: Ah, right. Because if you're just too easily compatibilistic, you might think there's no conflict at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I think then we have to. Z- the Hume thing seems <laughs> to me to be shallow. Somehow. I can't quite
1: put my finger uh, on it, but I think it's
0: sort of shallow. Um, I think it's on the right track, actually. I think it's okay. kind of deep, if not. Exactly right. So all right, Hume all right. will say, look, as long as you're doing what you want to do, you're not being coerced and that's all the freedom you could want. But it's very easy for the determinist, you know, worrier to say, yeah, but uh, my desires were caused by something. And so I'm really locked into them from, in, from the beginning. And so then others will say, ah, well, but as long as you have second order desires, that you have the desires you want. So you're not like a compulsive gambler or an addict acting on your desires, but that you don't want to have the desires, then isn't that all you could want? And it goes back and forth like that quite a bit. But I think the deeper view is that we just don't know how to put these two pictures of reality together into a single picture. So what I really think is that it's not obvious that free will and determinism, for example, are compatible. It's not obvious to me that they're incompatible. And I think it's not obvious to me how they relate to each other at all. They're so different that I don't even know how to put them on the same kind of map. Oh, interesting. They're incommensurable. So
1: you think you think it's like... Um... Violins and chicken dinner. Yeah, that is sort of like are violins and chicken dinner incompatible? <laughs> yeah, maybe. And you're like, well, what do you, what do you mean?
0: Maybe if it was more like the two <laughs> lenses or two glasses where you couldn't easily be wearing both at the same time or something like that. In other words, if they're really completely unrelated, you might think, well, isn't that a way of being compatible? Interesting. But maybe it's sort of like playing soccer and playing the violin. You can't do them both at once. Right. But um, right. What's wrong with you being able to do both at different times? Right. What do they have well, to do with each other? Okay. Nothing.
1: Well, what they have to do with each other. I think is this that we feel a tension between. Okay, so tout comprendre, tout pardonner—to understand all is to forgive all—and uh, I feel that uh, we feel a tension when we're dealing with people yeah. that we care about, including ourselves, between taking their choices seriously, and that includes credit and blame, yeah. and letting them off the hook. And I think that tension
0: yeah. is maybe why I think yeah, it Hume is. is a little bit shallow here, <laughs> you know. I see. You're, yeah, no, I see what you mean. They do, at some points, come into real conflict or friction. And what you're describing is what I think of sometimes is like, how do you know at what point to forgive somebody? Right. Like you see, maybe once you see what explains their action, then you think, okay, now I have to give up my agential moral point of view and just quit feeling the resentment and—, and impulse to blame
1: like i like blaming myself for not seeing my mom more Uh i like it because it sort of it ennobles me yeah it gives me the opportunity to do better in the future yeah right it makes me think oh i'm a more integrated human than i was 15 years ago yeah or 10 years ago and that's good so right i feel like um in a weird way, mm-hmm. being too forgiving to myself is depressing. Yes. While being too right. judgmental of myself is uh, upsetting. <laughs> I don't know. If probably... you're too
0: forgiving, I have this feeling. Sometimes when I feel like I'm being too forgiving, I'm letting myself off the hook, holding myself to such a low standard. Right. Uh, that I'm responsible for that. Right. Too. The
1: soft tyranny of low expectations. Exactly. Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Okay. We're, we're going we're gonna to take a little break here.
0: We were just talking about the soft tyranny of low expectations. Taylor, what were you going to say? I was going to say Kant expresses what you were just saying a little bit um, by saying ought implies can. That's to say your freedom, the idea of your freedom, comes along with your recognizing that you're under some kind of obligation. As long as you ought to do something, Uh, it must be the case that you can do it. You can't blame somebody for doing something that was literally impossible for them to do. So ought implies can. Sidney Morgan Besser had, as I usually had, the Jewish version Mm -hmm. of these philosophical theses. The Jewish version of this dictum was uh, can implies don't. (laughs) So Okay, so
1: let me flip this around a little bit. Let's say we we speak to another uh, comedy writer who's much more important than me uh zelensky (laughs) and we ask him why didn't you just bug out of there Mm -hmm. when they invaded Mm it why didn't you just leave and he says i loved my countrymen so much that i couldn't couldn't ah yeah moral necessity yeah like um yeah when things when people are completely at their best when they're actually full of love Mm -hmm. and either love for whatever the people they're taking care of or love for the artistic goal they're trying to achieve yeah so it's not only morality If you're completely taken up by love, don't you sort of give up your ego and, like, you don't have a choice.
0: Right. You have to do it. I think that's—there's something that Harry Frankfurt calls volitional necessity, that I must do this. And moral necessity is one of those. And Kant understands that uh, morality that way, too. This is what you must do. So when the Bible says thou shalt, that's the shalt of must. You must do it. You have to. Like, it's great that Zelensky says,
1: I couldn't have bugged out of there.
0: Yeah, but, couldn't have. But it's
1: a different couldn't. Exactly. Because he
0: could have. He could exactly. have. Exactly. And they had, <laughs> those you know. things are actually compatible, right? And the, the one depends on the other. It can only be the right. case that you do this because you must if you're doing it freely because you know perfectly well that it's possible for you to turn tail and run. But you don't. But
1: what does that mean? It's possible, but it's impossible? That's yeah, so confusing. yeah,
0: two different senses of possible. That's right. I mean, okay. uh, but I think they're both genuine kinds of necessity. I think we understand freedom better if we see it not as totally arbitrary, maybe capricious choice. I mean, Sartre thinks of freedom this way, it seems like, that really you could do anything. And that's your freedom, and it's terrifying. But your freedom is that there's nothing keeping you from doing absolutely anything you could conceivably do. But I think there's a more robust, interesting notion of freedom, which is that you're really aware of your freedom when you see what you have to do. Uh, The alternative is unthinkable. Mm -hmm. And that's really when I'm confronting this other kind of conditioned freedom, which requires constraints that can add up to something close to necessity. a a different kind of necessity from causal necessity, granted, but still doesn't leave room for a whole bunch of arbitrary, an infinite horizon of arbitrary considerations. You don't deliberate in those situations by saying, let's see, I could kill my family, I could start robbing banks, I could jump out the window, uh, you know, whatever. Those are things that are so off the table, you don't even think about them. And you would probably think you were betraying your real commitments by even thinking okay. about such things.
1: I want to share a, a intuition with you, and it might be dumb, mm. but I want to say what it is. Yep. But it's that I feel that if I look back at earlier times in my life, when, for example, I didn't go see my mom, mm-hmm. I feel that I was more acting from compulsion and limitations of perspective and Uh, neuroses, uh and less free. Uh So I blame myself, but I sort of feel like, this is what I was trying to say before about, I sort of feel the path of my life has been from less freedom and knowledge to more freedom and knowledge.
0: Oh, I see.
1: Is that a real thing? Like, I'm having trouble articulating it in this uh, conceptual universe we've created on this podcast or explored.
0: So you had the freedom, you had enough freedom to sort of cave in to what you felt were the pressures of the situation on Yeah, I
1: had enough freedom not to go to my mom and instead spend the weekend, like, working on a script or whatever I was doing. Right. And yet I think I have more freedom now because I kind of understand... Oh, that's your workaholism rearing its ugly head, and that Uh, you—that comes from your anxiety, and you understand why you're anxious, and why don't you deal with that anxiety instead of covering it over? Yeah. So that makes me feel more free.
0: Right. Yeah. But but what does that mean? More free, less free? Yeah. You've now see that you have a positive freedom in doing what you're most deeply committed to, like to your family rather than to your career or the situation. Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe in the original situation, you were thinking of freedom in these negative terms of like, I'm free as long as I can get away from this burden of having to sort of visit my mom, and uh, yeah. I can be free can free of that constraint. If you just think of freedom as a negative freedom from constraints, maybe you've got an impoverished sense of freedom, yeah. I think freedom is both of those two things, too. There's Well, I'm not way, talking
1: about the changing of my conception yeah, of freedom. Right, I'm saying that literally me, Eric, was less free 10 years ago, and I'm more free
0: now. Yeah. Is that a real thing? I think in terms of positive freedom, Right, that you, mm-hmm. you, were, sur- what is you were surrendering your freedom by just thinking about the constraints on you and trying to avoid the most burdensome ones. Mm-hmm. And what you were lacking was this positive freedom, which is the freedom you get when you most wholeheartedly remain true to the things you're really committed to that matter most to you, in spite of what the immediate demands of the situation may seem to be. Right.
1: It could be that our hearts sort of... Um... Expand when we hear the stories of uh, heroes yeah, who yeah. are willing to risk their lives where they were like, that's what people can be. We can be so free yeah. that we're just going to like try and save Ukraine, even if that means we're going to die. I think, and we're going to do it. Yeah,
0: I think one thing that's shallow about some of the philosophical discussion of free will and determinism is this conception of freedom is just negative, arbitrary choice. As if it's just just wiggle room inside the otherwise deterministic cage of oh so, physical so events. give us a better conception of freedom teller there's a bunch of different versions of this positive conception the Kantian one is autonomy. Autonomy. That's
1: ancient Greek, and it means I'm my own law. So I'm like a legislator. I'm both the House of Representatives and the people <laughs> of America, and I lay down a law for myself to follow. Yeah. Right? And
0: I'm free okay. when I'm bound by my own law. I'm i am free when I'm bound by my I own law. I agree with Kierkegaard okay. that this is a little bit like Sancho Panza thwacking his own butt. Okay. I don't think you can be bound by your own law exactly. The other
1: thing I think is it seems not the best way to be, because I also think if I say— I promise to meet you tomorrow <laughs> and then a really important thing happens and I break my promise that's good that's not just permissible that's actually good <laughs> so so to be able to break uh, one's oh, own commitments yeah. is itself a good thing not a bad besides
0: thing. which nothing keeps you from doing it
1: <laughs> nothing keeps me from doing it but supposing I could call up Mark Zuckerberg yeah. and I I could have a a helmet that would drive a <laughs> bolt through my brain if I ever broke any of my promises. <laughs> uh, that would be a bad purchase. That's I bad Tommy, want... yeah. Ah, yeah. Okay. But, okay, my, but favorite, we were my, going...
0: my favorite version is something more like the existentialist sort of idea that you're really in touch with your freedom when you are acting in a kind of wholehearted way on what's most deeply important to you and willing to sort of take risks ...in this wholehearted, genuine way in which you feel that really the alternatives are in a sense unthinkable or impossible to take seriously. So in all, although that sounds like a kind of restriction of your options, I think it's liberating because you're not tyrannized by the sheer diversity of options so that your choice would have to be arbitrary. I think when you really feel like you're in the flow and— Ah, the flow. —and what you're heading for is obviously the thing you're devoted to, and you don't even question it very much, that's when you're most free, I think. Do you feel at that time you have merged into the situation and you've become
1: a kind of a—like, I'm no longer Eric— I'm Eric as an aspect of an on a, a, an opening flower of which I'm simply a <laughs> petal.
0: I don't think that. you don't I, think that. actually. I've never had that experience. But I'm
1: thinking it's like Wu Wei in Taoism that like the truest freedom is you just sort of you become a drop uh-huh. of water in the oh, yeah. in the
0: flowing river of life. I tend to think of it not as depersonalizing, but what I do feel like I'm really free of is this third person kind of objective picture of me, like from a profile standpoint or from the point of view retrospectively that we we're talking about, like from the point of view of my fate, right. in which it looks like after all, as free as I felt, I was still the same person that I always was with the same idiosyncrasies and the same character. And anybody who knew me well enough knew what I would have done. Uh, I'm free of that because I don't feel like I'm constrained by like my character or any of the things that are usually horizontal to my Mm -hmm. own perspective Mm -hmm. on life. So let me just mention, there's a series of documentaries that the filmmaker talked to a bunch of seven-year-olds, and then he went back and talked to them when they were 14, and then when they were 21, and every seven years uh, re-interviewed them. And they're fascinating. And at about 28, I saw most of them, 28 or 35, I started getting really depressed Mm -hmm. because there was a real continuity of character from the seven-year-olds to the 35-year-olds. And it really made me feel like, wow, there's something inhuman about this standpoint, this accordioned out kind of temporal picture of their lives which is not the picture they had of themselves now it may be some true in some respect but i found it very discouraging because there's so little fundamental change and by the way the people in the film some of them really resented this after a certain number of years and refused to participate because they saw these films and i think they had the same uh, kind of reaction that i had maybe which is that they felt like they were being captured in a kind of profile picture that looked like it robbed them of their freedom right there seems to me something
1: a form of violence yeah to studying someone's life and not intervening uh-huh. because i don't remember the details but i i've observed this in my own life like supposing you know somebody who's got a tendency towards alcoholism mm. when they're 14 yeah. and you shoot them for a, a couple months
0: shoot them with film Shoot them with film. Yes. Okay.
1: You record their <laughs> yeah. slide towards alcoholism, uh-huh. and then, yes. and then seven years later, you come back and you record them as uh-huh. a full fledged alcoholic. And I think that one of the things that might have depressed you is like in a normal circumstance, when you saw them at fourteen, you'd do something about it. You wouldn't just record it. Yeah. So naturally, the, the record of this sort of violence. Yeah. Uh, and it's a violence of it's a violence of um of not doing. It's a sin of omission.
0: Yeah. Is gonna it's gonna chill the soul. <laughs> yeah. It's the standpoint of the really detached spectator. And as a viewer of the films, you're being made an accomplice to this sort of This cruel this sort of cruelty. And totally disengaged non-participation in their lives. Because seven years is a lot of time to go by between these snapshots. And so you do see a continuity, but obviously you're not seeing their lives from their own points of view. So there's a version of a kind of determinism, free will, or if it's not determinism, it's something, you know, like fate versus free will Mm -hmm. kind of dilemma, which I do feel very poignantly because I think it's not implausible if somebody did that, you know, as a sort of record of my life. I would feel very alienated from it, and I think it might even f- rob me of my sense of having an open future of possibilities that I'm projecting into that's not just going to be a part of this catalog right, of predictable right. patterns of behavior. Uh, I even get more depressed about it when I reflect on things I've done or said, and I think, oh, that was so typical of me. It's not its not my conception of myself, but I look at it and I think, this is what I must sound like, this is how I must look, and I've been like this since forever. And maybe there's no escaping it. I think I feel free when I'm free from that picture of myself and I'm devoted to something. Yeah. And I'm aiming for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think I can't, I don't know when to stop because I think this is a, such a deep question. Oh, it could but, go on and we could have other versions of it for yeah. other
0: episodes. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. But I think it's, I think this was cool. Uh, I'm less terrified and and I think it's uh I'm glad we discussed this Taylor me too, so very edifying. It's been edifying yeah okay <laughs> uh, uh, but not edificizing okay so <laughs> this has been um uh, terrifying questions and how not to be terrified by them. I'm Eric Kaplan and I'm Taylor Carmen. Thanks for uh, listening. It's been fun. See you next week. Bye bye.
0: This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Aberhart, and edited by me Taylor Carmen.